Hello, welcome to the Dear Writer podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ashley. We're two aspiring collaborative authors sharing our writing journey with you. The ups, the downs, and everything in between. Whether you're just starting out or a more experienced writer, we hope that you'll find this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. And here's the show. Welcome back, everyone, to Dear Writer. Today, we are on to episode 26, I do believe. And today, we have another of our author spotlight episodes, and we have with us Keith Fenton Miller. Hi, Keith. Welcome, Keith. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem. We're very excited to have you on. So Keith works during the day for the Federal Trade Commission as an attorney. And in his spare time, he likes to write historical fantasy novels. Uh, His debut album came out in 2017. And I believe his next novel is coming out in May. Is that right, Keith? That is correct. May 18th. Oh, exciting. So close. Now you said you said my debut album. I, I oh, did I say I album? Assume... <laughs> Novel. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't realize I had those talents, but maybe you know something I don't. So, <laughs> as I said, it is early in the morning here. I apologize. Yeah, no, that's okay. That's okay. I, I thought maybe that was some new lingo, like we call them albums now instead of maybe books. we should. Well, you know, if you yeah. wanted to add an album to your novel, it has been done before. So. I, I would love to because I love I love music, and music actually plays a big part, you know, throughout. The series but anyway I digress I will let you continue with your introduction (laughs) no thank you for the correction (laughs) yeah so it's great to have you on the show today I think we'll just dive straight into the questions so we like to start off by asking sort of how you got into writing and whether you know you started when you were young and whether it's always been a passion or something that's more recent If I had to trace back my interest in writing, it would probably go back to my interest in theater, which started when I was in my middle school years. And my claim to fame then was playing the Pied Piper in a Pied (laughs) Piper musical where I had to dress up in um, green tights. And my distinct memory from that is my gym teacher, Mr. Sneary, you know, real classic tough guy seeing me in those tights before I went on stage and just breaking into laughter. But I survived that. And I did a lot of theater in high school. And then in college at University of Michigan, I found my way into a sketch comedy troupe called Comedy Company. And we wrote and performed sketch comedy. And that was Although I have always enjoyed literature and sort of analytical writing, this was really my first foray into writing something to be performed. And that was such a great process just to see your words actually come alive and to, you know, iterate it, to polish it, to work on the comic timing. And so that was my first foray into sort of published type of writing in the sense published being performed. Mm-hmm. Later on, I got into the longer form uh, when I was well into my legal career, my my early 30s, I started to explore that. But the sketch comedy stuff always kind of lurks in the background. And uh, one of my favorite things about writing is the dialogue, the interchange, you know, between the characters and trying to balance the the narrative with the comedy and not going overboard on the comedy and detracting from the narrative is just one thing that's it's taken me a while to learn how to do that you know with I don't want to self-edit too much but there can be too much of a good thing or a bad thing 
That's really cool. What made you get into comedy in the first place? I guess it kind of stemmed from doing theatre and I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it was from that. And well, it's not a very exciting anecdote, but uh, (laughs) during my freshman orientation in Ann Arbor there, uh, someone from the comedy company came and spoke to the incoming freshman class about this comedy troupe. And it just sounded fantastic. And, you know, I made some lifelong friends through that. So it was just fun. Of course, yeah, I like comedy and I like performing and I love when people laugh, hopefully not at my expense, but, you know, with me, not at me. (laughs) Yeah, there's certainly some painful memories uh, associated with performing because we after I graduated from undergrad, we took the show on the road and sort of toured around for a little bit. And Hmm. there were some quite awful shows, lots of silences and crickets. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) because yeah we had some venues that really were not appropriate for what we were doing so Uh, uh, (laughs) did you always write your shows ahead of time or did you do improv as well or yeah we didn't do improv you know the the sales pitch was you know the quality is always going to be consistent whereas with improv you never know what you're going to (laughs) get yeah true Frankly, I think that was just an excuse that we were just too chicken to do improv. But no, it was more along the lines of Saturday Night Live in the sense that it was prepared material. Uh, I see. Yeah. Exciting stuff. It's so interesting. Yeah. Kind of a different angle to come into the whole writing thing, which is quite cool. Yeah, I think so. I have kind of the absurd slapstick side to myself, but then also an, an analytical side. I was a philosophy major in undergrad. I'm a lawyer now, so I'm interested in in the law and how the civil rights area, the First Amendment jurisprudence, that type of thing. So I've written a lot. I used to, not anymore, but I had written a lot on the academic side. And so mm-hmm. I don't know, in a sense, the you know the comedy and the the kind of the longer form analytical approach kind of maybe when you mix them together, you get a novel. I don't know. I'm just going to go with that. I don't know if that, that's something, but I, I've always liked writing. But the thing that annoyed me about philosophy is it would get so analytical and so technical that it took all the fun out of why I was interested in philosophy in the first place, exploring yeah. kind of the deep questions. And when you get into linguistic analysis and things like that, it's just it's just not fun anymore. But you know, with novel writing, you can create a narrative and you can explore themes and ideas in a fun way, in a, in a creative way while still kind of getting at those deeper questions, but just in a more entertaining way. So I think that's kind of how I, you know, really gravitated towards towards the novel. That is really interesting. And I think we can both kind of understand where you're coming from, you know, using the analytical side of your mind and combining that with the creative. Because, you know, as we were talking about before we started the show, and as our listeners know, Ashley is a chemist and researcher, and I'm an operating room nurse. So we both have quite sort of, you know, academic and career-based jobs that we do. And sort of along those lines as well, while we're speaking about careers, how do you balance your law career must be quite busy with your novel writing? Yeah, so it certainly can be. So I am a consumer protection attorney for the Federal Trade Commission. So that means I help protect consumers from fraudsters and false advertisers and things like that. And that's my specific focus is false advertising. And it's a it's a great agency. It's a great culture. I, I really enjoy the work because it's fun. And as far as the writing, uh, the creative writing is concerned, I have a lot of flexibility in my job. Even prior to the pandemic, the agency was encouraging a lot of telework. And that 
saves a lot of time if you don't have to commute, you know, For sure. get dressed, you know, that yeah. type of thing. <laughs> And, and so that automatically provides extra time for writing. But, you know, even when I was uh, working a more traditional five day a week situation, I would write while I was taking the metro into work. There's inevitable downtimes uh, while I was working and I could write in those little segments. I, I'm okay with short bursts, you know, as if it's 20 minutes, a half an hour, some, you know, or if it's, uh, you know, three or four hours, but um, mm-hmm. I kind of like the writing and bursts in a way. It, it just, uh, it keeps things fresh, maybe <laughs> yeah. switching from the more analytical aspects of my job and then switching to the creative. And Cause I kind of feel like the creative part is always percolating there, simmering it in your subconscious. And you're always working on those problems that you're trying to solve in the narrative that you're writing, even if you're not consciously aware of it. So, you know, it's just a matter of, okay, now I'm going to turn my attention to this creative task and, you know, just let it bubble up and get it down on on the page Mm -hmm. and then just go back and forth. So I, it works for me. Are you one of those amazing people who can write thousands and thousands of words a day? You know, my hat's off to people who announce, you know, I've written 5,000 words a day, 10,000 <laughs> words. I've never measured my progress by uh, the number of words. That's just never been my, my motivation. Yeah. Uh, it's never been my goal. All I know is, you know, I'm going to tackle this problem or these couple problems or issues that I, or I'm going to start writing this particular scene. And then I write until my brain conks out. <laughs> or, you know, I have other obligations that I have to turn to. And that's, that's it. That's yeah. success in, in my book. Yeah. And you know what, it gets done. The words will get done. I, I never have a problem with too few words. Yeah. You know, it's always like any writer, it's there's always too, too many words and you have to cut back. And that's, that's where the real skill comes in, not putting words on the page. It's actually narrowing it down and making mm-hmm. your scenes and everything more cogent. Yeah. Getting the right words there in the end. Exactly. <laughs> no matter what kind of weird tangled path it took you to put them there. <laughs> exactly. And for me, this sort of relates to, to your question. A lot of my work, I started out as someone who was a heavy planner in terms of the, you know, the, the plot and organizing the plot and spelling it all out. And, and I think that's a reasonable place to start. Mm-hmm. But I found that I had so much detail in my outlines, and then I would inevitably deviate from those. Because when my subconscious took over, it wanted to go other directions. And so that there I would go. And so now I just feel less stressed about not having a really specific plan as far as writing. I, I like, I don't know if this is a thing, but I like to write from my subconscious. So just kind of let it go where it's going to go. I mean, as a result, it's an inefficient process because I end up chucking things uh, quite a bit and not actually knowing what story I'm trying to tell until I really get into the writing. And then I kind of have to go back and shape it and mold it. But that's the process that I found that I, that I have to follow. I just, uh, for me, that's the way it works because if I try to approach it just from you know, my analytical side of the brain, okay, this is the story I'm going to tell, but you know, what is my subconscious? What am I hiding from myself? What's in my subconscious? What am I, what is the story I really want to tell? Yeah. And so that's what I, it's, it's always a mystery to me. What I, what story I'm trying to tell. I think that's half the fun of writing, right? Even, even if you do plan it out, when you have those words written down and you read through, it's almost like reading through a new book. (laughs) 
Oh, it, yep. At least we find that, especially for us as well, because that, you know, we're really only writing half a book because we collaborate on ours. So mm-hmm. it really is like seeing something come to life and you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> but right. even, even my own writing, you know, you read through and it's kind of surprising what comes out sometimes. Right. Yeah. And it's, it really is a, I mean, it sounds trite, but it really is a journey of self-discovery because it's like interesting that I keep coming back to those types of images and those types of themes, you know, what what does this say about myself? You know, it's, it's, it's therapy in, in that sense, I suppose, but hopefully entertaining therapy. Definitely agree. So when we write, we write a chapter and then we send it to the other person. So they've never seen the chapter before. So Sarah just sent me one of hers this morning, which I haven't read. So I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to it. Cause it's always like, Oh, I wonder what's in there. Like I kind of know cause I've seen the chapter plan, but then it's always kind of a loose plan. They're not really, except for a couple of like, you know, big dominoes they have to fall they're usually a bit there's room for leeway so i'm very excited to read that later yeah that that is interesting i've always been interested in writers who collaborate like that i just i wonder i obviously you must have a master outline and you have milestones right so the other person you don't leave the other person. imagine that it, it it goes directions that you wouldn't have anticipated and then the other person has to pick up on that i would assume right yeah yeah we have major dominoes that have to fall um, and usually a couple key things that have to happen in a chapter, but we give no prescribed way on how those things happen, if that makes any sense. Good. So, yeah, no, that's exactly what my process yeah. is. I think that's a good, I highly recommend that that approach. <laughs> I think it's it, that works yeah. for me. It works well for us as well. We also, we've had it happen where we've been writing and we've been like, oh, you know, this would work really well if we do this. And so in that case, if there's something really major that we're going to change as we're writing, then I'll quickly send a text through and be like, hey, I was just thinking about this. Yeah. And usually Ashley would be like, that's fine. Do whatever you want. Right, right. We're usually on the same page. How is it progressing? How's your progress on this shared endeavor? (laughs) Our current one is progressing slowly because it's it's a historical fiction book. So there's lots of research that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. As I'm sure you're aware with your book is sort of on an ancient Greek mythology or one of your books, right? Mm -hmm. With our book is ancient Greece, sort of, but in ancient Greece, whereas I know yours was more like the 1600s or something yeah so it does some of it most of it uh, in terms of the mythology aspect for the book that's coming out in may uh, that takes place in uh, fictional worlds you know uh, tartarus and olympus so in a sense those places exist outside of time but essentially they exist in the time of ancient Greece. There is a critical scene that does take place in Delphi in the fourth century of the common era. So there is that, which I guess you'd say is technically taking place in ancient Greece. But the most of the story, the forward story, uh, takes place in 1603 in this first book. So trying to weave, you know, the past, the ancient past into the less ancient past, (laughs) (laughs) the Renaissance. Sounds very interesting, though. How did you find the research for that kind of thing? Like, did you do a lot of research for it? Or um, were you more sort of flexible? I read books. Uh, There's a lot of resources online, you know, for Greek mythology. The nice thing is about mythology is that it is it is malleable. I mean, you don't want to subvert people's expectations too much as far as if you're using, you know, a mythological scheme like the Greek gods. So 
I think most of it is consistent with the canon of Greek myth, but some of it I definitely deviated from, particularly with respect to fate. I think most scholars or people who write about Greek mythology would say that while there were three fates, you know, that they were weaving fates together. And Mm -hmm. I sort of embody fate in this one character named Moira, who is uh, a primordial goddess. So these are the gods that preceded the the original gods who preceded uh, the Olympians, actually, and the Titans as well. They preceded the Titans. But I work in the concept of threes and the, the number three kind of pops up throughout the course of the series. Uh, there's very critical role of three sisters and, and Moira ends up uh, creating a, a sister for herself to help her with all the work that she has to do in weaving fate tapestries and kind of working together as sort of the cart and the horse make, make three in a sense. Uh, they, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So uh, different ways of exploring that concept. But in term, but, but getting back to your question, which is about the research, uh, I just realized. It's like we always deviate and go off track. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> uh, that, yes, I mean, I, I read resources to become up to speed enough on Greek mythology. You know, I read fiction books like A Thousand Ships and uh, Madeline Miller's Circe. And I didn't reread Homer, but I've certainly am familiar enough with the Odyssey and the Iliad from college and Clash of the Titans, you know, <laughs> all those, all those really uh, hallowed resources, you know, that are out there. So that that part I didn't worry about as much because I didn't, I wasn't trying to subvert the expectations. But there definitely are subversions because one of the one of the elements that it is through through the whole entire series, the issue of of identity specifically with regard to race. Now it's less emphasized here in the 1600s, but it's, it was important to me to kind of establish, even from the mythological standpoint, a kind of a black-white dichotomy. And so, so Hermes is, is a black man. His mother is, is a black woman, a mountain nymph. The mountain nymphs are black people. Uh, it's not kind of over the head. It's just sort of laying the groundwork right. for, for later books, which do tackle uh, those issues more head-on. Uh, so there is definitely subversion going on. And certainly, my approach to Greek mythology is quite irreverent. I generally don't have a lot of respect for authority. Well, I do and I don't. <laughs> uh, like, I, I respect authority. I mean, I, I, I'm a lawyer. I respect the rule of law. But then I also just like to make fun of it. I also I like to make fun of the, <laughs> yeah. the hierarchy and the powers that be and to point out the hypocrisies that are there and the absurdities. And uh, and so I, I use sort of the Greek pantheon as, uh, as my crucible for, for that, yeah. to explore those types of inherent uh, hypocrisies. Yeah, so it's, that's fun. In terms of the Renaissance uh, part of things, in terms of the research, that did require a little more digging because a lot of the story takes place in Livorno, Italy, which is uh, near Pisa. And in 1603, it was a very small city. There there was only about 500 to 1,000 people at that time. And I wanted to know, well, what was life like there? And so it was hard. And I ended up finding a couple very esoteric scholarly books. You know, people actually write on this stuff. Uh, Some, I think it was... I think it was, it was an Italian or an Israeli scholar who wrote a book, and I ended up checking it out from the University of Michigan Library because otherwise it would have cost me $150. <laughs> and it was really helpful just in terms of like the type of money that they use, the types of foods that they ate, the role of the Medicis in 
kind of establishing Livorno as as a port city because uh, Florence, where they were based out of, was inland, it was landlocked, and it was very important for them to have this port city and to kind of connect it to, to Pisa. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, so I, I just wanted enough specifics that I could give the narrative a sense of authenticity in terms of the type of money, the type of buildings that were there. The role of the, the merchant guilds is important in the story. And so I kind of use that element uh, in the book. So, uh, you know, some of it is, well, I want to know what it's like. And then it gives me a, a further ideas for things I can do with the story that are consistent historically. But obviously it has this mythological, magical element that that's not yeah. real. But that's what I like. I, mean, I like to subvert you know, expectations of what, you know, not just stick to history, but add this kind of dreamy mythological element. That was a really long answer. <laughs> it was great. It's okay. <laughs> I was going to say it's surprisingly difficult to find specifics for when like we're doing research in ancient Greece. And I think for you in Italy, you can find general things about Italy or like about Greece and then trying to find stuff right. for your very specific town because you know that it's not exactly the same as, you know, the whole of the country was. Mm -hmm. So I can see that being challenging, especially by how small it sounds. Exactly. And and actually one benefit of living in the Washington DC area is we have the Library of Congress and there are just tremendous resources there. I This was a couple of years ago now. I, I don't know how they had this in their collection, but they did have letters uh, written by English explorers, sailors uh, about Livorno. Oh. Uh, of course, they called it Leghorn. That's the anglicized version of Livorno, Leghorn. So Leghorn straw was a, it was a big deal. Leghorn straw hats was a big deal. And yeah, and they actually wrote letters about uh, the, the port that was there and some alleged miracle cures for, <laughs> for uh, venereal disease and that type of thing. And so I actually worked some of that. That's in interesting. I was like, that'd be cool. Yeah, it, it just adds nice atmosphere to the story. Letters would be so interesting to read too. Yeah. Reading like letters from that long ago, it's just so different. I know my mother has some from one of our ancestors moving over to New Zealand. Which oh, is, wow. It's just so interesting. Are the, are the uh, what is it, the Fs or Ss <laughs> or something? I, that's the one thing I always find distracting. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to translate in my mind those that long S something like that or maybe it's the other way around trying to read handwriting get so used to reading typewriting becomes a challenge sometimes reading handwriting yeah exactly yeah i know that from trying to read well, maybe right. doctor's handwriting oh my god <laughs> yeah i have that problem reading my <laughs> students handwriting which is the opposite problem because often they barely write anymore so when they do exams which are handwritten sometimes it's atrocious Right. What are they writing in like emojis? <laughs> Hieroglyphs, but emoji yeah. style. Just trying to like yeah. speed write. Yeah. It is. It is interesting though. It's a generational thing. I, I think that is something from the mobile culture that we live in now that there's, you know, there, there's this whole other kind of dialect that's developed where people speak in shorthand and <laughs> it probably does make it harder to write coherently in, in the traditional way. Right. For sure. Yeah. Well, since we've talked so much about this book that's coming out in May, maybe we you should tell us the title and maybe a bit more of a premise about it because we've kind of sure. fed clues. <laughs> so go for it. Exactly. So the title of the book is Fate Accompli, and the, the fate part is, 
is a pun. It's F-A-T-E, fate. Normally it's F-A-I-T because it's a French word. So fate accompli. That's hilarious. I know. Um, so that's, <laughs> like it's, it. book, it's book one. Uh, it's not supposed to be funny because fate is a character in the book. But anyway, uh, it's book one of the Water Nymph Gospels series. And it is in the historical fantasy, magical realism genre. And at a very high level, it's about a cursed hat maker from the Italian Renaissance who joins forces with a Sicilian water nymph to face down the god Apollo. So the guts of the story really begins in 1603. We meet Andalosa, who's a young hat maker from uh, Livorno, which is in Tuscany. And he has dreams of becoming the next Galileo. He's really scientifically minded. Unfortunately, his family has been cursed to make hats because his ancestor, his Greek ancestor, stole Hermes' teleportation hat back in the fourth century. So what is Hermes' teleportation hat? Well, this is the hat the god used to use to bop around between Olympus and the earth and to transport the souls of the dead to Hades. Anyway, so you, the, this family, the, the Petisos family, that's Petisos is the Greek word for sun hat, and that's their name. So you put the hat on, you think of a place, you ask the hat to take you there, and voila, there you go. So that's, that's one curse that's uh, central to this uh, series. Then there's Carlotta Lux. Now, Carlotta is a feisty Sicilian who has dreams of her own uh, that are sort of of a technological bent. She dreams of building bridges and dams, just like her estranged father. But there are two problems. First, she's a woman in the early 17th century and facing those societal obstacles. Mm -hmm. And second, like Andalosa, she's cursed because her ancestor is Daphne. Uh, Daphne is the water nymph from Greek mythology who turned into a laurel tree while fleeing the god Apollo's sexual advances. Now, what's not widely known in uh, mythical circles is that Apollo did not give up the chase after Olympus fell. So for centuries since then, since the fourth century, he's been escaping oblivion, possessing mortal men and going after the women in Carlotta's family. So now in this story, Apollo has possessed the eccentric and powerful Sansone de' Medici, uh, who has taken Carlotta prisoner. And Andalosa stumbles upon her at Sansone's palazzo, and he has to decide whether to cross him, potentially putting himself and his family's hat business in jeopardy, and teleport Carlotta to freedom. And you can imagine the choice he makes, and wacky hijinks and close shaves and romance ensue. So <laughs> I suppose if you, you know, I, I'd say that the, the tone of the book is darkly humorous, hopefully. <laughs> on the humorous side, not just dark. So like a mixture of Terry Pratchett and Madeline Miller, you know, who wrote Circe. So you kind of get the mythology and the history, but you get a irreverent uh, bent on everything. That's really cool. What a great story idea. Thanks. I love the mixing the ancient Greece with um, <laughs> the 17th century. That must have been tough. It's like difficult enough for us trying to mix modern day into ancient Greece and mixing two uh, historical concepts together it must have been mm -hmm. quite a challenge yeah although it's I think it would have been much more of a challenge if I'd started out intending to write the book that I actually wrote <laughs> uh, the fact of the matter is is that I the process of writing this what is now a five well will be a five book series uh, books are mostly written I, I really did it <laughs> in reverse because I had originally written one book that took place sort of in the near future that 
had all this backstory at least suggested in it. And then I realized at some point that there was a lot more story in here. There was a lot more I wanted to explore. So on the hat cursed side of things, I was really interested in the main character's great grandfather and, you know, where did they come from? And, and so I started kind of inventing a, a history for them. And so I focused on Berlin in the thirties. And that was the basis for my first published novel, Casper Mutzenmacher's Cursed Hat. It's the same family. It's the same curse. And then before that, they had come from Livorno. And then before that, way back in ancient times, they came from Delphi. And so it, it just kept going back. And so then I'm like, okay, so they're in Delphi. How they get to Livorno? And, and, and they just figured out how to piece all this material together. So I had five books of material that, that I had written in different forms and combined in different ways. And finally, I figured out, you know, how to combine it in a way that was satisfying from a narrative perspective that wasn't confusing to the reader, where I could lay the foundation of the mythology, but then also still kind of remain in the past, you know, to, to really show how these two families ended up coming together. Because so Olympus fell in the fourth century. That's when the curses came down on both families. But these two families were unaware of each other for 12 centuries. It wasn't until this story, until this first book, that they meet and realize that if they're going to break their respective curses, they have to work together. So it was a good way to, you know, kind of go back and forth between what's happening in this Renaissance time when the two families meet and the ancient times in Olympus and Tartarus when, you know, fate is kind of creating this whole tapestry of destinies that will dictate the course of the series. So I did it backwards is, is the short answer. <laughs> I think that's a really cool idea to have sort of the running thread of the curse coming through. It gives you quite a lot of flexibility with your storyline and in terms of like generations. And I think that's really cool because you know, that's something that a lot of authors struggle with when they're trying to create a series is, you know, they follow like one character through and then it's like you get to the end of that and the character's gone through as much character development as possible. So then your series has to end. Whereas that kind of mm -hmm. gives you an opportunity to sort of continue on or a different, different way of joining your series together. Yeah. Right, right. And one of the themes is kind of riffing on what a curse is. So obviously there's the, you know, the mythological type of curse, but there are other types of curses very realistic. And I consider at times tradition and societal structures can be a curse of sorts where people don't have control over what those structures or traditions dictate. And so when we move to book two, which was in the 1930s uh, in Germany, there's an exploration of, of Jewish tradition and, you know, how that can combine one generation to the next. And, but in, which is a good thing, but can also be a very restrictive thing. Yeah. And the whole idea of myth and the role of myth and the myths that underlie racism and sexism. So the curses uh, you know, are kind of an opportunity to reflect on those things that we as real human beings have to deal with. So, you know, give it sort of a perspective and maybe an absurdist sort of way, mm. but also hopefully a way that will resonate with people that will be entertaining, but also say something deeper. Yeah. 
like more of an embodiment of the curses of normal life. I guess it would embody it more like in by giving it an actual curse, but then also right. kind of working everything in. So where can people find your book um, and your first one as well, uh, which is called, I'm not going to try and say the name. I tried to practice it before and couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the first, uh, yeah, the Casper Butzebacher's Cursed Hat. So I have taken that down because that book, it will now be books two and three of the series. Oh, I see. So okay. what I did is I expanded that into two books. So it's a long, uninteresting story, but essentially the my first publisher, Curiosity Quills, who published uh, Cursed Hat, they went under or effectively went under and that sucked, obviously, but yeah. uh, it was also presented an opportunity to reinvent, uh, relaunch the series yeah. in a more chronological fashion, because I always mm-hmm. felt that fait accompli, although I didn't I hadn't worked it out at the time. That should have been the first book, kind of, this is how it all began. Mm -hmm. And so then, and then Cursed Hat will now be the the second and third stories uh, in the Water Nymph Gospel series. So the short answer is you could probably find, uh, there's probably some on on Amazon, but, uh, you know, unless you want it as a collector's item, I would just uh, (laughs) wait for the the second and third books to come out. But so Fate Accompli, you can find at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the online retailers. The uh, You can pre-order a digital copy. The print uh, edition will be available for order on May 18th when uh, the book drops. So how exciting. And then there'll be an audiobook too, uh, as well. I expect that'll come out within a couple weeks of the publication date. I have a really good narrator, uh, this guy named Josh Brogadier, who's narrated uh, many, many audiobooks. Uh, he's really talented. So I was, count myself very fortunate that he agreed to narrate it. Oh, exciting. An audiobook. That is really cool. Yeah. I think we've probably just got time for one more question, but I did want to ask you because that your publishing journey has been a little bit different from the sort of indie authors that we've interviewed before. How has your publishing journey been? And with your current publisher, is it more of like an independent one? Like, do you keep your rights or have you signed with the publisher or what, what's sort of going on with that? And how has your experience been? Yeah, so my publisher, Elysian Press, is a traditional publisher. It's a small mm-hmm. press, but it operates largely in the same way that kind of the big five or big six, whatever they are, operate. They have the right to publish it. They have control of the cover and distribution. I keep my, you know, rights to the content and, you know, I get a percentage of of royalties and they created the cover and they did the editing. So it it would be a traditional arrangement. And that's the way it was with my first book with uh, Curiosity Quills. It was the same. I wasn't getting any kind of huge advance or anything like that. But uh, so other than that, uh, it was like a traditional uh, relationship. I had explored other possibilities. If I didn't find an independent publisher, there are cooperative models out there where authors kind of get together and create a publishing brand and then agree to you know, use a preferred set of cover designers and editors, that type of thing. So you could be assured of the quality. So that was kind of going to be my fallback option if I couldn't find an independent press, but it worked out well. Uh, I really like Elysian Press. They do a fantastic job with the covers. The quality of the writing uh, from the other writers is very good. They're very selective. Mm -hmm. So I count myself very fortunate. 
With your first book, when the publishing company went under, did you manage to get your rights back or was it difficult or? Yes, thankfully, that wasn't an issue. The publisher sort of understood that people were jumping ship and they they didn't want to like hold us back or anything. And it's not like I was making a fortune for them anyway. So there was no reason for them to be difficult. So yeah, yeah, it was just very simple. I just said I would like my rights back. And he sent me an email saying, behold, you have your rights back. (laughs) So, you know, so it is written, so it shall be done. And yeah, so that, but yeah, I definitely needed that in order to get with a new publisher. Did you go through uh, an agent or did you contact them directly? I contacted them directly. Now I have several times over the last 10 years, probably gone through three waves of query letters to agents. And it's, you know, I've gotten close a couple of times, but it's never panned out. So yeah. that was always my initial preference was to try to get or query them at the wrong time, or they just thought, oh, this, this guy, he writes crap. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think it was that. The agents have to be so selective because they have to really be behind what uh, they're going to take on. And mm-hmm. if they're, you know, if they say, oh, this is good, but I'm not excited about it, they're not going to take it on. And and that probably makes sense. It does make sense for sure. It doesn't make the process any less frustrating because they really are the gatekeepers to the big publishing houses. But that's the way it is. And it really just depends on what your goal is as a writer. And fortunately, I really like my day job. So I don't need to write to survive. Yeah. Uh, And my goal is to create the best product I can and to grow as a writer and, you know, grow an audience who likes what I write and maybe get some good reviews in the process. And that to me is success. So I'm fine with it. That's really cool. Sounds like quite a sort of nice and smooth publishing journey compared to I've heard or read some stories on different podcasts and different books of, yeah. you know, people struggling with that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, there's this inherent uncertainty in the whole process because you don't know if it's going to work out and it's hard. You have to be prepared for that. You have to have a thick skin and just focus on what you can control, which is your writing habits and trying to make yourself a better writer, you know, take workshops, go to writers' conferences. I did the Yale Writers' Workshop and the Stony Brook Southampton Writers' Workshop. I have a writers group, take online courses. Now, this was actually a really good thing that I would recommend to young writers is uh, I did these pitch sessions uh, with the New York Writers' Workshop. So you go to New York City and you learn how to write a pitch for your book. And then they put you in front of three or four well, it's usually an acquisition editor from different publishing houses. And, you know, the idea is that if, you know, you maybe you'll maybe they'll ask for a submission and that that can be exciting. But the real skill is learning how to write a pitch, which is a completely different skill mm-hmm. than writing a novel. Condensing down your 100,000 word masterpiece into 250 words is difficult, but it's also, I found, very helpful in, in the writing process because it can actually expose flaws in your plot (laughs) if you realize that, oh my God, I don't have any real conflict here. Or, uh, (laughs) you know, when I try to condense it down and say, what's the story about? I'm like, oh my God, I I really, there's, there's a gaping hole here. So it actually is a really helpful exercise. It could be a little demoralizing if you realize you forgot to put the conflict in, but uh, it is a real good education. So I would highly recommend, you know, if you can afford a couple of days in New York City, plus 
the few hundred dollars for the pitch session, uh, if you can afford it, it's a great, great experience that I think could actually save a lot of time and angst in the long run. If you learn how to condense things down, I mean, even if you don't do that, it could be a useful exercise to say, okay, I've finished my draft. Let's try to convert it into a pitch. And if you can't, then you've got work to do. Yeah, that's a really great tip. I like it. Definitely. Good excuse for a couple of days off holiday in New York City too. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's so fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a blast. When eventually COVID gets better. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, probably by the fall, I think things will be back to normal. I think the New York Writers Workshop, they do a pitch thing in the spring, maybe like April or March, and then September. So I highly recommend it. It's a great group of people there, writers who run that. One day when I can eventually leave New Zealand, I don't think the fall will fall. Wait, your fall, my spring. We're still, I think, mm-hmm. be not imprisoned, but you know, isolated over here. <laughs> it's different for different countries. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, is there anything else that we haven't mentioned already that you would like to bring up and have a chat about? Or, um, I think so. Well, one of the things that you had in your questions was resources. I mean, I sure. guess I alluded to, you know, for writers and things that I've discovered on my writerly journey that have been helpful. As I mentioned, the the workshops, the, you know, the, the actual conferences, Neil Writers Workshop, Stony Brook, Southampton, those are two excellent, excellent conferences where you actually workshop your stuff and have great craft talks. Now, they're less expensive when they're online, which they have been for the last two years. But, you know, Again, it's a commitment, particularly if you're flying from New Zealand. Uh, <laughs> but in there, I took an online short story writing class through Stanford. Stanford University has like these online programs, which, uh, you know, the faculty are, are top-notch writers. Those are good. The pitch sessions with the New York Writers Workshop. And then just a few books that I have found helpful over the years. Uh, Stephen King's On Writing. I'm sure a lot of writers mentioned that one. There's a book called Story Trump's Structure by Stephen James. There's the portable MFA in creative writing that's produced by the New York Writers Workshop. These are all, you know, very accessible, not too long books. And I think those are good resources to read and then put aside. It just, you know, just try to internalize what they're telling you. And then another kind of nice little resource just to have is something called the Emotion Thesaurus. Oh, yes. Uh, it's called a Writer's Guide to Character Expression. So you're familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's really helpful because you can get, you know, it's easy to get, you go to your go-to gesture or, or expression and it's like, yeah. Use new phrases. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I actually had to just return that to the library today it's like done <laughs> i really need to buy it well it's on kindle yeah that's what i so I, so those are the resources that i've relied on the classes sound really interesting i've occasionally considered taking some but didn't know where to start although the ones that i've found in new zealand are a bit i'm like uh. yeah new zealand you will never know oh, about the quality yeah but if there are some online options with some of the bigger universities in the states that could be something definitely to look at and then you can say you went to stanford yeah, exactly. Yeah, you get a, I think I actually, well, no, I don't know if I got a some sort of certificate or something, but I would never say I went to Stanford <laughs> because of that. Uh, another resource, which is not really relevant to novel writing per se, but Second City, you're familiar with Second City, uh, you know, the, uh, the performers, you know, who did the sketch comedy and improv, they have a whole slew of courses that they offer online. I took writing online satire uh, type thing and, and a couple pieces that I generated out of that. I ended up getting published online and they have all sorts of, you know, they have a storytelling classes where you could just learn how to stand up and tell a story. 
sketch writing, screenwriting. So so that's also a good online resource. So that's called Second City. Second City, yeah. That's a lot of helpful resources and I'm sure anyone listening will find that very useful. I know I'm certainly going to sort of go back into when I edit this episode and sort of note those down. But yeah, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, absolutely. So I was going to ask how people can get in contact with you if they, I don't know, want to chat, want to find out more about your writing projects, whatever. Yeah, they can go to my author website. It's a very creative name. It's my name, Keith. FentonMiller.com. Easy. Uh, you can go to the Elysian Press website, which is ElysianPress.com. And the Elysian is spelled with two L's, I guess, because of some trademark issue. I don't know. You can find me on Instagram at, at KFentonMiller. So shouldn't be too hard to track down. No need to go to the dark web. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm there. So I'm the only, we're the only uh, Fenton Millers I know of without a hyphen no hyphen so i think we're you know, pretty easy to find me cool well thanks again so much i had a really good time learning all about your books and your process and yeah well thank you so much no, and the really interesting journey that you took to get into writing through comedy yeah and also the interesting uh, i guess contrast between the analytical stuff you do as a lawyer and then the fun writing stuff you do as a comic mixing together i found that really fascinating to hear all about Good. Well, it's been an absolute delight uh, meeting both of you and being on the show. So thank you so much for the opportunity. No problem. It's always so much fun talking to other authors on here, learning all about their journeys. Definitely. So what are we doing next time, Ashley, on Dear Writer? So next week, it's another one of our Talking Shop episodes where we talk all about the books we are currently reading, both for fun and to try and help us in our writing journey. Okay, and so if anyone wants to get a hold of us, you can go to www.lindersoncreations.com or get a hold of us on Instagram or Facebook at Linderson Creation. And if you would like to be on Author Spotlight episode, we do have some spots open. So just head on over to our website and you'll find under the podcast drop down a link to be featured on Dear Writer. Thank you for listening and happy writing, everyone. Mm-hmm.